Well, indeed, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus Christ. And we are here because the Jesus Christ who came and who is coming again came through his Holy Spirit to wherever two or three meet in the midst, focused on him as the Lord of their life. There he is. So we come before the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. And today I am excited to finish out the series, Left Behind No More. We have been in two chapters in Matthew, Matthew 24 and 25, for two months, focused on what Jesus' thoughts are concerning current events in the end times. I was telling the worship team this morning as we gathered that I feel like such a great Bible expositor. I've spent two months in just two chapters, right? You know, some people just go verse by verse, one fragment by another fragment, that kind of thing. But I tell you what, I could go on much longer even, even reflecting on what we're going to be looking at today, because there's just a lot of meat and inspiration as well as humble pie, if you will, in Matthew 24 and 25 when Jesus Christ took his disciples, set a few of them down on the Mount of Olives across the way from the Temple Mount, and he shared with them an answer to their question, Jesus, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They wanted to know what was going to happen. There were current events in their days. There was great anticipation in their day for the kingdom to be established, a physical, visible, political, in one sense, kingdom, They wanted that established. They were Hebrew people. Jews longed for it. They longed for the Messiah to come to make all things right. And they didn't quite understand, though, that the Messiah would come in two different kinds of ways. The first time, he would come with great humility. And the second time, the Messiah would come with great glory. And so as he's speaking with them, he shares with them that there's going to be a period of time. But there will be a time when he returns. Now, they wouldn't have called it the second coming, right? They weren't even dialed in that there was a first coming fully, right? But he began to articulate the vision of him coming to reign, just like we sang with that last song. So I'm going to jump straight there. Because I want us to gather around this Lord's table and continue to worship in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because this table, as we will reflect on, really stands as a sacrament between the first coming and the second coming. It stands as a sacrament between the present age and the age to come. And so I'm looking forward for us gathering around this table as Uh, family and friends of the body of Christ here this morning. So as we jump right there, we are at Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, he launches into this after he's just told three stories, three parables that we've looked at over the last three weeks. But he moves out of his parables and he begins to share things in a more direct level um, layer again concerning this big picture of the kingdom of God. And he says this in Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory and all the nations will be gathered before Him. Now, there are a few things to pull from this initial statement that he's saying as he's sort of giving his concluding remarks. He refers to himself as the Son of Man often throughout the Scriptures. In fact, it was a way to refer to himself in a humble sense. There was... Strong opposition with 
him declaring his divinity that he was God. So for him to say he was the son of God probably would have only made things worse. But he took upon this Old Testament phrase of the son of man referencing the Messiah. And he refers to himself in this, but it is himself. Don't get any you know, misconceived ideas about that. When the son of man comes in his glory. Now he's referring to the end times. It does not say there when Buddha comes in his glory. It doesn't say when Muhammad comes in his glory or Confucius comes in his glory or even Moses coming in his glory. It's when the Son of Man, referencing himself, when Jesus Christ comes, comes again in his glory, his great glory. He's already stated a few verses back that, you know, look up for the Son of Man will come in the clouds with great glory. All right, so we are picturing a return of the Messiah physically to this earth, not in a hidden measure, but in a measure by which all people will see and all the angels with him. How many angels do you think there's going to be? We're going to look at that in a second. He will sit on his throne in the heavenly glory where that throne is that we're going to look at. And then all nations will be gathered before him. He's going to accomplish something that no political leader has been able to do. All the nations, all peoples are going to be gathered there in some measure. All right? Now, this here, one of the things we're trying to define in this journey these two months is what's it all look like as it plays its way out without getting too involved. And, and it's disappeared for the last three Sundays around here, but I had to bring it back for the conclusion. My little timeline. You got it? So here's the timeline that we worked with for a number of weeks, and then we went into the three parables for three weeks. If you want details of this, I think there's still some copies on cards out in the foyer you can pick up on your way out. But it's always been helpful to me to sort of have the context, the bigger picture. And here in this timeline, referencing from creation all the way to the new heaven and the new earth, from Genesis 1, the first chapter in the Bible, to Revelations 21 and 22, the last chapter in the Bible. There is an epic going on. We are a part of this epic. We are not the author of this epic or this story. God Almighty is. And in this story, he created mankind. He created the heavens and the earth. And he placed in this world people who could choose to love him or choose not to love him. We are not forced to love God. We are not robots. Why? Because that would not be any kind of love or not display any of God's glory. So he created human beings with the freedom to choose. Human beings chose. And there was the fall. Sin entered the world. Not only was there, is there fallenness in the human being, every one of us, but there was fallenness in our creation. But there was an age to come where God would make all things right. And that age to come penetrated into this present age when God's son, Jesus Christ, entered into this world. And so when Jesus Christ came the first time, he brought the future into the present. Some of you say, wouldn't it be great to be around when Jesus comes back again or when all this? Well, guess what? You're around now. People like Moses and Elijah and some of the great saints, they long to be in the season that you're in right here. You get to be here 
after Jesus came the first time when his power and his glory is working internally in the lives of people who are seeking to follow after him. So we are in the church age, what's referenced as the last days. And when Jesus begins to explain to his disciples in Matthew 24, what's the big deal? What's the story going on? He's talking about the day and age in which we live. But the future has invaded the present through the first coming of Jesus Christ. It was the beginning, as that bottom arrow shows there, different stages of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 26. Jesus was raised, the first fruits of that which will happen. Then the dead in Christ will be raised, those who are followers of him. And then there's a final resurrection of the dead that's in the end with the great white throne judgment. But this present age we're in is moving towards a culmination of the second coming when Jesus will establish his millennial reign. Scripture talks about a thousand-year reign before even then the new heaven and the new earth that moves on into eternity. There will be a tribulation time predicted as a seven-year tribulation. Part of that seven-year tribulation is a great tribulation. It's believed the latter three and a half years. There's the rapture that's spoken of when the church, the people who are followers of Christ will be taken up and meet the Lord in the air and return with him then to this earth. When that is, there's speculation on it. That's what the arrow is. But we are currently in the spiritual reign of Christ. And when he comes again, he will establish a physical reign here on earth. And we talked about it being what? Boots on the ground. All right. So that's the little picture of the big picture. This little picture I carry around in my mind all the time, especially when I go to scriptures. And I put this picture inside a picture frame. And then I put the picture frame inside the universe. (laughs) And it sort of just puts everything together for me. It's a big, awesome, massive world. I was reading about the universe this week, and you just your head starts to spin after a while. I can't think about that anymore. It makes me feel like such a little teeny half ant. You know, it's just like incredible big. But God chose this earth, and he reformed it, and he made mankind. Mankind fell. He has a purpose in redeeming mankind. And this is the plan of the ages that's playing its way out. And what the kingdom of God does for us, whether we're just seekers of God for the first time this morning or we've been walking with God for a long time, an understanding of the kingdom of God gives us context for which we can live out our life in appropriate measure. You are not insignificant. You are not a blip on a screen, a meaningless uh, entity that, is annihilated and never exists forever. You are precious to God Almighty. You are made in His image. And even with all of our brokenness and fallenness, Jesus Christ came the first time, His death and resurrection, to redeem us. He is coming a second time that we may be physically with Him where He is at in His reign. So we stand between the times. We seek to do what He would have us to do. This biblical worldview, this kingdom worldview, gives you context. And that's one of the main reasons I chose to do this series, is because as we seek to be the awakening church, fully alive in Christ and to his mission, we cannot do that unless we have, I believe, the picture frame 
around all that's going on, not only in the world, but maybe even more importantly, in your particular life. So it's important as we study this and as we work through it. Here are the disciples, though. They were devout Jewish people. They understand the bigger picture. They knew that there was to be a Messiah who would come and he would reign in glory. And so when Jesus shares these words, and let's look at them again in Matthew 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and with all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory and all the nations will be gathered before him. They identified with that in one sense, but you can you imagine the moment in time they were sitting when they heard Jesus speak these words, what their thoughts must have been? Friends, we're 48 hours away from Jesus hanging on a Roman cross. Even as Jesus sat there on the dust and the dirt of the Mount of Olives with the Temple Mount in the background, people were planning his demise. Evil was at hand. The crowds who had followed had started to dissipate and disappear. And here's Jesus speaking to his handful of disciples, telling them that the Son of Man, the Messiah himself, was going to come with great glory and many angels. They probably leaned to him and said, What are you talking about? Wait a minute. That can't possibly be what's going to happen with what we're seeing. They didn't understand, right? That there would be the coming of the age to come into the present age and that there would be two comings. We get that opportunity to understand that. They didn't. But here was Jesus without blinking an eye, adamant that what was going to transpire was what they had believed as Hebrew people from long ago. There would be a Messiah who would bring a reign and bring a kingdom, bring great glory, bring peace, would bring together all nations. Now, the angels thing, it's interesting if you were to pop over to Revelation 5, which ties in so well. Revelations 5, verse 11, it says this. John, in his apostolic, in his, op, uh, uh, his end times look, says this. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels. And here's the number of them. Numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. How many is that? A lot. Millions and millions. Some of you are pulling out your little calculators right now. I was, well, let's have it. That's the picture. Jesus coming back. All of the angels and the glory and the redeemed who have been already taken to be with him. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. You want to keep on going? And, and, and. Then I heard, John says, every creature in heaven on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And we sang about that day. Forever I will praise Him. That's the destiny. He depicts this through John in his later years in the book of Revelation. But when he's sitting talking to his disciples, he's articulating it as well. 
Then the king will say, he will come with great glory. Now, I think it's very important for us to understand this. A lot of times we think, well, this is in heaven. All this is happening. Uh, The new heaven and new earth, all that's transpiring there. You need to understand this. When Jesus comes, he is coming to have a literal, physical, earthly reign on this planet. This is not wishful thinking. This is not fanatical thinking. This is not science fiction. This is fact. Jesus is coming back to gather all nations before him when he sits on his throne and it will happen where he vindicates himself from being crucified the first time. It will happen on the throne of David, Scripture says. Now, that's a mighty powerful event to try to comprehend. But like I said, friends, this is not fiction. This is not a movie idea. This is reality. This is prophetic scripture. And some may say, well, how does that tie its way in? Maybe, aren't you sure it's more spiritualized? No. Look at the Old Testament as related to Jesus coming the first time. It was there. It was hidden. It was embedded. He would come to Bethlehem. He would ride on a donkey. All right? Other prophecies. Uh, the, the spear not a bone, a spear in his side. There wouldn't be a bone broken. They're all embedded there. And when he comes back the second time, we're going to open our scriptures and go, oh my gosh, it was there. Duh. What were we thinking? And so when Jesus says, the king will come and sit in his glory with all the angels with him on his heavenly throne, it's going to be a physical reign. All nations will be gathered before him. We'll go back to Matthew 25, verse 31, now 32. All nations, Kingdom, all nations will be gathered before him. I'm not sure how that's going to happen. But it's going to articulate that all the nations are gathered when he comes back. And he is going to make some decisions. He's going to make some decisions in that moment. And it goes on to say this in verse 32. And he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Now, if you've ever been around people who do shepherding, they run mixed together, the sheep and the goats, many times. Predominantly sheep, but there's some goats. And I thought that would be an analogy to stretch around here, but they actually herd goats on hills in French Valley. <laughs> some of you have seen it. And when the king comes back, And he's seated on his throne with all the nations. He's going to send the sheep to his right side. Now, you need to understand the right side of God is a blessed side. And then he's going to send the goats to the left side. The right side represents those who are blessed of him, who are followers of him. And the goats represents, and goats really are this way when they're all herded together. You know, sheep are little more docile and they're pliable and they're calmer. The goats are a little rambunctious and rowdy and unpredictable kind of thing. I mean, and they literally do. The shepherds separate the sheep and the goats at eating time and at resting time because it just doesn't work together. So this analogy is really very ever-present for them. And he just simply says, when, when, when I come back and all the nations are before me, I'm just going to divide them into two groups. There's going to be a final separation. A final separation of those who are before him, of those who are of his mind. 
and his heart and of his kingdom and those who are not. And so here on this last day of this series, one of the challenges for me is that probably one of the hardest, harshest words of Scripture has to be addressed to all of us. There is a day of judgment coming when he does a separation. And that's a final separation. It's a final separation, Scripture says. In Hebrews, it says it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. What's the first thing that happens on the other side of death? All those near-death experiences? Well, maybe so. I don't know what visually seen and that kind of thing. But there's a clear separation of those. Scripture says adamantly Jesus speaks more about it as much as anything. And there's going to be a separation of the sheep and the goats, those who are followers and those who are not. Now, for this day and age, what? We all sort of run together. Now, it's interesting. It doesn't say sheep and wolves. Sheep and goats. They sort of go together. So it's sort of like we talked about with the ten virgins. You know, they were waiting on the bridegroom to come, and, and they were sort of all in the same camp. But when it came, some were ready. Some had the provision of the oil, the, sal- the saving grace of God in their life, and others didn't have the oil. And so some were left behind. They were left out of the wedding supper of the Lamb, which is referring to Jesus coming back. So here's this final separation. So he begins to dig into this a little bit. But I think it's important for us to understand that in this process, he doesn't have to bring in a court. He doesn't have to hold a grand jury. There is no indictment that we're waiting to see handed down. He clearly understands who's in what camp. And we rejoice in that ultimately as believers because who better to fall into than the hands of a perfect, holy, and just, and merciful God? All right? But there's, there's no waiting for the verdict to come in. He has it with him. It'll be dispersed. It says this in verse 34, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Now, we need to pause here because there's, there's sometimes an easy confusion with this passage about how he makes this distinction between who the sheep are and who the goats are, who gets in and who is cast aside. Because it becomes very practical in the words of Jesus in just a second. But it references here, then the king, Jesus will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father. If you are blessed by my father, then what? You have a relationship with the father. You have received his blessing, all right? Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. You do not get an inheritance unless you are already a part of the family. So he's referencing um, these people and he's saying to those on his right, you who are blessed of the Father, you who have that faith in me, You will receive your inheritance. The kingdom has been prepared for you since the beginning of creation. Whoa, that's a long time. And it's going to be a powerful kingdom. In 1 Peter 1, verse 3, New Living Translation, you can sort of catch some of the flavor of it also here with Peter. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, 
God is protecting you by his power until you receive the salvation, which is ready to be revealed. When? On the last day for all, all nations to see. So, you and I this morning, if we're followers of Christ, if we're part identified with his family, with his blessing, and we're part of his brethren, then we should be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead for you today. Even though this week may stink. Even though you have to endure many trials for a little while. Let that truth in the midst of your picture frame, in the midst of this universe, in your daily life, call you out with a spirit of gladness and hope and worship and praise. So we return, Matthew 25, verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. He's made the decision. There's the separation of this. He knows it quite clearly. But then he goes immediately into something that is very, very practical and very, very disturbing, beginning with me. He says this, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Now, the challenge here sometimes is we might think, well, those who are the sheep, they are blessed that way because they have done these things. So is this not a description of works righteousness, if you will? If I do certain things, then I get in good favor with God. And on that final day, whether it's when he comes again or when I pass from this life, if I've stacked up enough good things, then I get to be a part of that group that gets to worship and live with him forever. But that's not necessarily what's being said here, even though there's some appearance to that. What it's saying is those who have true, genuine faith, who are blessed of the Father, who are truly a part of the brother, their lives will be marked by such things. And when they did such things, they did these things unto me. It will say later. There are six things that are listed here. They're quite straightforward. I was thirsty. I I mean, I was hungry. You gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Very practical, pragmatic things that identify the heart of those who are of the Master and the Messiah. Now in those days, it's not so much here, but those were the prevalent needs. People were very hungry to be fed. There were water issues, so thirsty, something to drink. Strangers, there were no hotels, so you invited people in. There was hospitality that went on a lot for people that were new into town. Clothes, another translation says naked. Naked doesn't mean stark naked. It means without the proper outer garments and things going on. And you gave clothes. Sickness, no big hospitals there. People taking care, ministering to people in homes, in prison people that were there for whatever reason that needed to have hope brought to them. And he's saying, this was true. I was these things. And then it goes on and it says this. It says this in verse 37 of Matthew. Then the righteous will answer him, well, Lord, I mean, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, I tell you the truth. 
whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. For me. The Jesus we sang about today. The Jesus we're talking about from Scripture who spoke to his disciples and is coming again. That Jesus who you will meet face to face someday, boots on the ground here on this planet. That Jesus says these things which you did were done to me. I'm very mindful in a morning like this that some of us are weary with our responsibilities. And our responsibilities may not have to do with hunger and thirst and clothing. They may have to do with responsibilities of being there for your kid. Being there for a brother or a sister, an extended family member as they're journeying through a tough time. It may be that someone has immense physical issues that are going on. And you would say to yourself, I'm pretty weary of this. I was doing some social media with my sister the other day who has an adult son who is very challenged in his life. And she just said, I am weary. I'm weary of being his mom. Now, she didn't mean I don't love him, but it's hard. Friends, you and I, we will grow weary in doing good. We are physical, emotional beings, and we will wear down. But in the midst of that, some of your strength can be buoyed up. If you identify the fact that what you are doing, you are doing unto Jesus. You're doing it unto Jesus. The uh, interesting thing was these people who are part of the sheep, they were like dumbfounded. Oh, when when, 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 when did he do that? I don't recall we ever did that to you, Jesus. Why did he? Because it was a natural outflow of the condition of their heart to be able to be a benevolence and goodness. Is that true of all Christians? No. Is it true of my own life sometimes? No. Sadly not. But we need to lean into that side, and that's why this is a very missional passage that says if we are a part of the king's entourage, then we should be people who are compassionate towards other people every day, every week of our life. And you never know when God may bring someone to place before you. Now, this whole passage, I sort of smile at because the first time I ever really learned this passage was when I was in youth group and we had to come up with a skit for camp. And the skit for camp had a phone call from God that came to a household that was sort of far from God. And the husband and wife answered the phone and were dumbfounded that it was God. And God said, Jesus is coming over to your house. And they said, no kidding. And so they hurried around. They got the whole house ready. They dusted off their Bible. They decided they'd open their Bible, try to find something that would give them some sense of, okay, and they opened to this passage in Matthew 25. And so we portrayed this drama in a little skit. I remember doing that, one of the first camps I was ever a part of. And so a person would come, and they would come knocking on the door. And guess who was on the other side of the door? Somebody who was hungry, wanting food. And they said, I forget, we can't deal with you right now. And then there was another person who would come, and they were thirsty. 
Oh, we're, we're trying to get our house ready. We've got a guest coming. And you can see where it's going. Then there was a person who was a stranger, a person who needed clothing, a person who was sick, and a person who said that there was someone in prison they need to go visit. And they shunned them all away. And each time they shunned them away, they went back and tried to memorize this passage. You see, it's a disturbing passage to me because it is so real-time in my world. In fact, even last week, I got done preaching last week. I don't know if he's here today or not. Maybe he is. But there was a, a young man that came up to me, and I could tell it. He wasn't homeless, but he was probably staying with somebody in a room. And he was challenged a little bit on some different levels. And you never know quite how to read that, right? We've all been some of those kinds of times ourselves. And he just wanted a ride. And I said to myself inside, do I have time to give this man a ride? Or is this man going to take me on a ride? Right? We become a little jaded. So Levi and I gave him a ride. We dropped him off. had a nice little talk with him on the way. I really hope he lived at that person's house. But I wouldn't have been surprised if in my rearview mirror when I was driving away, he would have disappeared and it would have been an angel. Just testing me. In fact, yesterday in men's group, I was uh, sharing with uh, Steve uh, Meyer, who was uh, baptized. I don't know if Steve's here today or not. I think he had some... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, he, he, was, he was going to a football game with his boys. Yeah, he had some dad time. Steve was uh, baptized uh, last Sunday. And he says, you know, after message last week, we went over to Subway, me and uh, his wife and the guy and his little girl, whatever, in front of him, they got ready to pay, and they realized they had forgot their money. And I thought in that moment, here's an opportunity for me just to be a blessing. And he paid for them. And they were just so taken back. Now, you don't have to pay for everybody that's in front of you. You don't have to take everybody on a ride. I understand that. But do we get to such a place in our Christian life where we are not willing to help with those who are hungry, who are thirsty, who are strangers, who need clothing? You know, one of the problems with our gospel today in this culture is we have separated the proclamation of the gospel's message from the demonstration of the gospel's ministry. In fact, millennials will tell you this. One of the reasons millennials are exiting the church is because it's all about talking. It's not about the doing. And we have become a generation of Christians at some level who have separated the gospel from social engagement. I don't know how that looks to us. But friends, when I shared up front that we did the Operation Christmas Child boxes, some small token we can give to bless, you know, our 80 boxes are contributed to hundreds of thousands of other boxes that go to kids, not only with, with a Christmas gift around the world and maybe not know about Christ, but also with the gospel message, is that that was a good deed. And I thought, well, and Julie came to me and says, well, what, what about this angel tree project from Prison Fellowship? Should we do that? I'm thinking, oh, we just did the box thing. Can't we get by? And I knew where I was heading in a few weeks. And when we had our meeting today, Julie says, can we sort of promote the Angel Tree Project with the adults this week? And I'm thinking, we just got done with the Christmas boxes. Oh, my God, Jay. Wake up, Carrie. What's it say? 
When did we see you sick and in prison and go to visit you? Our family's done operation, uh, has done Angel Tree Project before, and I remember us being able to buy gifts, and they tell you how old the kids are in the family, and you take those gifts to the house. You're able to share with them and encourage them. I had a mom, I think we have eight families that have been identified with us to provide Christmas for with the Angel Tree Project through Prison Fellowship. And, and one of the moms called this week, and I was the person that picked up the phone. And, and she, she went into this expose. She says, I'm trying to get a hold of someone who was getting a hold of me about being able to do this, this Angel Tree thing, which is such a you know, big, uh, nice gift for us as, as a, a family. Their, their dad has been in uh, prison, is going to be in prison for another 13 years, I think she said. And she says, my problem is, I, this is a new phone number. I need to give you a phone number because one of our boys sort of got in trouble this last week, and uh, he was taken away, and he took the other phone with him. And you're just thinking to yourself, what kind of chaos is going on in that life? But here we get to bless that family. Now, I don't, like, pull out the huge guilt trip to dump on us, all right? A lot of us live with enough guilt in our lives about not measuring up. But what I'm saying is we need to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit because Jesus is in the middle of this. And Jesus said, when you've done it to the least one of these brothers of mine, you did it for me. We don't serve to solve all the world's social problems. We can't do that. Only the King Jesus can. But we participate with him in the ministry that he's doing, and we give our acts of service unto the King. But we need to dig our ears out, whether it's today after service or the next week, the next month, whatever it may be, to say, where is it in your life that you are practically engaging this broken world in a measure of service and a measure of blessing other people, even for no return? You know, I, th- I thought with Steve last week over the subway, I'm thinking, Steve, hey, did you tell him, hey, I go to the awakening, you know, I got bought your meal, come next week. Wait a second, what's the motive in that? It may have been appropriate, you know, but we do not bless other people in order to chalk up brownie points with God. And Jesus, when he separates the sheep from the goat, does not do this according to all the good things we've stacked up. But he's saying those who are part of the sheep, this is a natural outflow of the heart of who they are. I went to Costco this week. Friday night. It's actually a little bit slower Friday night. Everybody's going out or something. I don't know. I come out of Costco, and there was a street preacher preaching outside of Costco. I'm thinking to myself, is this legal? Somebody needs to get... That's what I'm thinking. There were some people concerned, but I don't think they could do anything about it. And I'm thinking, I'm listening to him a little bit. He's preaching, and it's all fine and good. I appreciate the boldness, the step to proclaim. But I'm thinking, does that just reiterate to our culture? that what Christians do is they're just a talking head or they're really helping hands. We have to bring both together. Just being helping hands without communicating the truth and the life and the hope of the Lord, uh, it, 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 it just is a combination of both. And so there'll be times when you just do acts of service just to, to love people, give them a hope day. Maybe that little girl went back and go, Dad, you remember that time a few weeks ago when somebody just bought our meal at Subway? There are kind people in the world, Right? You never know how God works it, but I'm just saying to us, we must be sensitive to the Spirit of God speaking to us because this is a pretty strong word from Jesus concerning Judgment Day. Concerning Judgment Day. He goes on from there then, and he says to the other side, 
Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not come, did not look after me. They will also answer then. Verse 44, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply. Verse 45, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. That little skit we did, <laughs> the skit ended. You know, you saw where it was going. We were hamming it up. We were having fun with the person who was sick, the person who was hungry, you know, the person who was prison, you know. They kind of they were hamming it up. And, and then it all ends with sort of things going silent and the couple then sitting in their little living room. And they read this last part. And then they just looked at one another and they said, I think Jesus already came. I think Jesus already came. The point of man wants to die and after that the judgment. Who gets into the marriage supper and the feast of the Lamb that was slain that's on the throne is determined by if you have the saving oil of God's grace. But once that grace starts to work in your life it should truly be evident in a life that's laid open and laid down for other people. And some of you may be weary of that this morning. I want you to know that you do it unto Jesus. And when you don't do it unto Jesus, when you don't do it, you don't do it unto Jesus himself. He separates the sheep from the goats and then the goats are taken to eternal punishment. But the righteous are allowed into eternal life. Back to our picture frame in the kingdom of God when the Lord Jesus Christ comes again, boots on the ground, physical presence, face to face, all that. I don't know how it does. I don't know how all the nations are there. I don't know how the separating actually goes. I don't know you know, what happens with the whole cast into um, the eternal punishment thing. But I do know this, that when the millennium starts, when the kingdom of God starts on this earth, it will be with those who want to have allegiance to the one who sits on the throne. And so, the kingdom promise from the creation of the world, the believers in Christ, those who have died before and those who are on that day are ushered in because of the grace and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ who has worked in their life. Soren Kierkegaard said this, Sometimes we pretend to be unable to understand the Bible because we know that the minute we understand, we are obliged to obey. In my study, there was a lot of debate about this passage. What does it really mean? What does it mean for salvation? What does it mean for social responsibility for us as Christians? What does it mean concerning the Lord's coming? I would just simply say this. May we not get too caught up and thinking we don't understand it all. I think Jesus was pretty practical with it.
May we simply obey. May we simply obey. And so I frame it up this way, an exhortation to us. Just do it for him. Just do it for him. Declare daily your allegiance to King Jesus by serving others in practical measures, proclaiming his kingdom in great glory and awaiting the kingdom inheritance, being prepared for all who believe and follow him from every nation. Just do it for him. I want to encourage you this as we close out our time and come before the Lord's table. Today is still the day of salvation. The king hasn't come to separate the sheep from the goats yet. If we're to pass from this life, then that's our day of judgment. But today is a day of salvation. All of us need to be prepared. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then take great delight and joy and the inheritance that's being prepared for you, even though you have trials and tribulations in these days. And be at it, serving others in practical measures and proclaiming his kingdom and his goodness through your own personal life and testimony. If you're not a follower of Christ and you don't know where you would be found when that separation comes, whether it's on that day of his return or on the day of your death, then you can know by being blessed of the Father If you will but repent, be baptized and turn to him. Last week, we had a beautiful privilege to see 14 people from our body baptized by a pool. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up to begin preparing our ability to come around the Lord's table. And we will share about this table just a little bit more before we partake of the table. But I want us to sing and acknowledge before him that he is the one who changes and rescues and transforms life. The passage in Acts where Peter had stood up and declared to everybody about who Jesus was and they were cut to the heart, those who were not followers him, those who had been part of the goats, they said, what must we do to be saved? And Peter just simply said, repent and be baptized, every one of you. And as we mentioned last week, even with the baptism, it's not the baptism itself that saves. But the baptism is a public acknowledgement of your allegiance to King Jesus and you want to follow him. Repentance is turning from your indifference, receiving the grace and the power and the love of Jesus in your life and choosing to live for him, broken as you are from that day forward. And so last week we celebrated those 14 baptisms And as we sing a song about how God rescues us, and then we step into the communion after that song, I want you to just enjoy a little bit of the recap of some lives that publicly declared they were part of the sheep last week.